If you're like me, the first thing you do when traveling is check out what's happening with the local food scene, right? And as I've been planning my big book tour and live podcast tapings all around the country, man, I am very excited to eat my way across the nation. There's Atlanta, there's Miami, and so many more. Going to local restaurants gives you a great taste of that place. And if you pay your bill with the Delta Sky Miles Platinum Amex, you get double miles at restaurants. Getting a taste of local food is the best way to get to know the local culture. And if you travel, you know that's how it's done. The Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Lately, I've been working on learning Spanish with Rosetta Stone. The app makes it so easy. And Rosetta Stone has the most advanced speech recognition tech built in. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Sporkful listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com sporkful today. So you grew up in Elmira, Ontario. I did. Elmira hosts what claims to be the world's largest one-day maple syrup festival. This is true. Can you tell me about that? For some reason that I, that I don't know, this little town that I grew up in decided it was going to own maple syrup in the way that Los Angeles owns the Oscars. <laughs> and um, I went through years of these, and the point of the maple syrup festival always eluded me. It's April which is a very nasty time of year in that part of the world. It's like slushy. It could get really cold. It could be freezing rain. Did you, like as a kid, did you make the maple taffy in the snow? No. Do you know what that is? Uh, I am aware of it, yes. I had a general disdain for all maple-based products. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Now the truth comes out. <laughs> This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. I hope you're doing well. I hope the rest of your summer wrapped up nicely. I hope you're getting back into the swing of school and work and real life and whatever it is you do when it's not summertime. Today on the show, I'm sitting down with Malcolm Gladwell. He's a journalist and the author of many books, including The Tipping Point, Blink, and Outliers. He also hosts the podcast Revisionist History, which re-examines the past and asks whether we got things right the first time around. Malcolm often draws on sociology and psychology in his work to explain big phenomena, but he likes to approach his subjects in new ways, looking at them from an outsider's perspective, revealing something new in the process. And he often applies this approach to food, He'll do that for us today. But first, I wanted to talk to him as an eater. So back to Malcolm's feelings about maple syrup. It came to symbolize something bigger for him. He and his family were immigrants. He was born in England in 1963. His dad's English, his mom's Jamaican. They moved to Canada when Malcolm was six, settling in Elmira, a small rural town about 90 minutes west of Toronto. And at that point, the strongest memory I have as a child is showing up in Elmira and coming to the conclusion that every Canadian ritual that I observed, I was too late for. All the boys my age had already been playing hockey for two years. So I never even learned how to skate, barely learned how to skate, which was, I mean, heresy beyond words in Southern Ontario. And I felt the same way about maple syrup, that it was a kind of, we were never going to be part of maple syrup culture. We we're going to be perennially outsiders. Do you feel like that outsider's mentality was uh, formative for you? Oh, absolutely. Of course. It's the most useful of all. I mean, it allows you, it gives you a little critical distance, gives you a 
plausible deniability for not having to go to the maple syrup festival. (laughs) So you weren't really Canadian, didn't feel Canadian. You were immigrants. Your father is English. Your mother is Jamaican. So what was the food like in your house? Well, okay, so there's all kinds of complicated uh, food things. My father is has an enormous garden, enormous. He produces so many vegetables that he has to appeal to everyone at church to come and pick their own, because otherwise it would be swamped. His goal is never to buy a vegetable from the grocery store. So everything is canned, frozen, and he has a kind of disdain for anyone's cooking but my mother's. So we never really go out to dinner. We would eat a lot of Jamaican food, except the great Jamaican influx to Canada is really mid mid to late 70s. And so you don't get you don't get yam, sweet potato, uh, you, you don't get goat, you don't get all the things that you would need to make real Jamaican uh, food. Can you, you get scotch bonnet peppers? I think scotch bonnet's a 90s phenomenon by the time, you know, it's like, right. so we, my mother had a very limited Jamaican food palate. She would mix it up with very English kind of things, like jerk chicken and shepherd's pie. <laughs> <laughs> that, that kind of thing. The region of Canada where Malcolm grew up was home to a lot of fairly recent German immigrants, as well as many Mennonites who spoke German but were from Eastern Europe. Malcolm says the area had 14 churches for 4,000 people. Eventually, the Gladwells became Mennonite themselves. Now, the term Mennonite covers a range of beliefs and practices. There's Old Order Mennonites who live similarly to the Amish, not using certain technology and dressing distinctively. Then there are mainline Mennonites, like Malcolm's family. They dress in more modern styles and use technology. Church was a big part of Malcolm's childhood, which meant lots of church potlucks. What was eaten everywhere you went was this very heavy, essentially Eastern European peasant food. You know, casseroles, shoe fly pie. I can't tell you what that is, but it was a very big deal. I looked it up. It's a pie with filling made out of brown sugar, cinnamon, and molasses, usually with a crumb topping. In some ways, it's similar to chess pie or sugar cream pie. They're all very simple, sweet, custardy fillings. But the molasses in shoe fly pie makes the filling dark and a little smoky in flavor. You know, Mennonites, if if your barn burned down, they would have a barn raising, and they would put up a new barn in a day, and hundreds of people would descend on their neighbor. And and my dad decided to join in one day. So understand that he's a math professor. (laughs) (laughs) And he he gets in his Volvo, drives to this Mennonite farm, an old order Mennonite farm. Oh, those are the ones who are more similar to Amish. Yes, they're essentially Amish without beards. Okay. So everyone has shown up in a horse and buggy. He shows up driving a Volvo... (laughs) in a beard with his three boys, wearing a tie, because he always wore a tie. And he just volunteered. And of course, they welcomed, you know, the menace are totally welcoming. So everyone would have brought a dish. And it was the kind of apotheosis of, of Eastern European peasant food. All the stuff that, like, you know, salads with jello in them and... Um, We're talking like ham and pea type salads? Lots of ham. Right. And pea, yes, uh, yes, that kind of— Right. And um, I'm, I'm picturing like sausages and sauerkraut, or is that wrong? Oh, yeah. We do know. You're absolutely right. Okay, a lot of sausage. So a lot of sausage, a ton of sauerkraut. Dessert would have been this shoe fly pie. A lot of molasses, I feel like, going on. My dad, by the way, just thought the whole thing was fantastic. There could not have been greater cultural distance between him and the people at barn raising. And he could not have been more comfortable.
So fast forward to today. Mm-hmm. I understand that when it comes to food today, you have some rules for yourself. Tell me about the rules for drinks. Well, it strikes me that an enormous amount of unnecessary effort is expended by people in making decisions about what to eat and drink, right? So you go out to dinner. Maybe you're one of these people who do this. I don't know. You go out to some restaurant. The waiter comes around, and someone at the table is agonizing about what to order. And, like, I, if you can't decode a menu... In an acceptable period of time, how do you fare with life <laughs> where, where, the, where the choices are infinite? So years and years and years of observing this just left me really filled with a kind of quiet rage. <laughs> <laughs> Why can't you make up your mind? I decided I wouldn't tell Malcolm that before I go out to eat, I plan out multiple meals in advance. I don't want to duplicate flavors, and I also want to optimize my hunger level. I also typically review the menu multiple times before arriving, and despite... All this preparation in a recent Sporkful episode taped in a restaurant, I had a minor breakdown trying to figure out what to order. But we'll keep that between us. Anyway, back to Malcolm's approach to drinks. And simultaneously, it occurred to me that as a society, as a culture, human beings have enormous problems with alcohol. So drinking struck me as something that you really do need rules. So I decided I want to have some conventions to make sure I'm never that annoying person who's like agonizing about the menu. So I decided my rules would be around what I drink, and they would govern both alcohol and everything, really. So my drinking rules were, I will only ever consume one of five liquids. Water, in its various forms. So I'll have sparkling. love sparkling. What about um, sparkling with, like, natural flavors? like a little No. Bit? Okay. First of all, that's an abomination. Okay. That whole thing that you and sometimes when you go into some you go into some gas station, and all you want is a thing of sparkling water. And there's nothing except for the ones that are flavored with like cranberry flavored what? <laughs> Who dreamt this up? This is nuts. <laughs> no. Okay, so water. So uh, uh still or sparkling but not flavored. Yeah. If I had if I wanted flavored, I would have said flavored. The convention would have specified flavor. What if you order it and it comes with a wedge of lime on the glass fine. when you squeeze that in? Yeah, that's fine. Well, what's the difference, no, Malcolm? No, because that's that's extrinsic. And by the way, that <laughs> that is a traditional there's, you know, to quote the Supreme Court. What is the Supreme Court like? They say that that when they look for guidance as to how to deal with the most problematic issues of our time, they look for things that have some rooting in American tradition, right? Okay. Well, the Supreme Court would say the wedge of lime is fine because the wedge of lime is deeply rooted in culinary tradition. You're saying the framers would recognize— The framers would have have used the wedge of lime. Absolutely. Okay. They're not— flavoring cranberry, putting cranberry in their water, are they? No, water. but you know, new, new, look, new interpretations arise over time, but I'm a strict You're a strict constructionist. Look, that's fair. I, I'm a strict sandwich constructionist. So. Oh, you are? Yes. I, I, have, I have argued that a, that a hot dog is a sandwich. Interesting. Because I believe that, you know, a sandwich, the definition of a sandwich, generally speaking, should be, like, would the Earl of Sandwich recognize it as a sandwich? Uh, and like, 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 like wh- how would he have defined a sandwich? Mm-hmm. And, like, that is where it should flow from. Okay. So, water. Water. <clears throat> okay. Tea. Okay. I'm born in England. Huh? Any kind of tea? Well, no. Uh, I don't believe in chamomile tea. I mean, these kind of, like, focaccia, you know— <laughs> Ridiculous, newfangled. They're like herbal infusion yeah. type things. That's nonsense. So you, Black you, teas. Okay, caffeinated. 
Caffeinated black teas. What I don't believe in is Earl Grey. Earl Grey is a bridge too far. My mother will drink Earl Grey, and I just find this, I don't know what, this is an abrogation. They do something to the Earl Grey. They perfume it, right? And I find that to be increasingly problematic. Okay. Um, So tea, uh, espresso in some form. So that could be cappuccino? Cappuccino. Generally, I'll have a cappuccino. Okay. Because number four is milk. Well, you'll just drink like a glass of milk sometimes? No. Typically, I only have milk in with with espresso. You realize that if you just said that your drink was cappuccino, you could open up another space on the list. If you combine the espresso and the milk into one, you'd have a new slot. Yeah, but I put milk in my tea. That just seems like tea, though. That's just like part of, that's a seasoning. No, 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 no. <laughs> there, now there. Now my, my father, were he with us today, would have taken great umbrage at that last comment. <laughs> you know, because you know the English... They're the class thing around whether, whether your milk goes in first or last. I don't know about that, no. In England, it's a class marker. If you're fancy, you add the milk after you've poured the tea. And the way that snooty English people make fun of lower-class English people is they refer to them as being very M-I-F, milk in first. Oh, ouch. Nasty. So my father, who was... <laughs> A firmly middle class, and as a, as a result, I think appropriately had a chip on his shoulder towards fancy English people, um, firmly embraced milk in first. In fact, referred to himself not as an MIFer, but as a prelactarian. <laughs> as, <laughs> okay. And he would say, if you put the milk in first, it's much easier to calibrate the amount of milk you're putting in. I have argued that when you're low on milk for cereal, that it's good to add the milk first before they pour the cereal in because that way you can get the correct ratio. Yeah. Because you only— you You're know, a prelectarian. Yes, when it comes to cereal. Only in specific circumstances. Yeah, you're but, a prelectarian. All right. Yeah. So tea. W- water, tea, milk. Espresso. Espresso. Not, by the way, I never have a straight cup of coffee. Okay. Only espresso. All right. And the last one is red wine. I saw, I resolved the great human conundrum around alcohol by saying I'm only doing one kind of alcohol ever. And I even get more specific in that, that I will only drink red wine that is below 13.5% alcohol. So th- these are your five drinks. Yeah. You remind me of that. You probably read that years ago, there was a Michael Lewis wrote a piece in Vanity Fair, profile of Obama. And he talked about how he had read research. Obama had read research mm. that you, if you have to make a lot of decisions in a day, over the course of the day, your ability to make decisions is degraded. This is why, like, going shopping can be very stressful and tiring to people because you have to make so many decisions. So Obama said, I- I'm not going to make any decisions about what I wear or what I eat. I'm, I- I'm saving my decisions for the important stuff. Exactly. You know? Like, this is why I would not be a good president, though. Yeah. Because I'd be like, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do about Ukraine. I used up all my decisions on lunch. <laughs> but isn't it really, Malcolm, isn't it really a question of priorities? Because there must be some decisions that you do agonize over. Not an agonizer. Really? Not an Even agonizer. in your creative work, when you, when you write, when you put a podcast together, you, you don't take a lot of time. Uh, you're not very conscientious with all the decisions that need to be made in the course of putting something together. They don't feel like decisions in the same way that decoding a menu does. So the thing about a menu or the list of drinks you get at a bar is that you're presented with a finite list of options and you have to pick one. That's not what the creative process is. Creative process is not, I got six things I can do with the story at this point. I'm going to pick number four. That's not what it is. There are no options. You have to dream them up yourself. And... So that does it seems that seems like a very very different kind of 
of cognitive work to me. Mm-hmm. Just so I understand the list of five, of five liquids. Yeah. Do you ever deviate from it? It's funny you say that. I, I reserve the right <laughs> to occasionally experiment outside of my... So, if you had seen me last Friday night at a restaurant, and you would have said, Malcolm, what, what are you drinking? I would have said, oh, that's a vodka and a tonic. Record scratch. It was the exception that proves the rule. One of my favorite aphorisms of all time. The exception that proves the rule implies that a rule is never ob- absolute, right? The reason we make rules is to try and generalize about a, a, a vast array of phenomenon. And we accept when we enter into rulemaking that the rules we come up with are not 100%. They're not inclusive of all experience, right? So the fact that I was willing to venture for that one night out in the direction of vodka and tonic was the exception to prove my rule. I was adhering to my rules by my very recognition that I was breaking them. But like, if you came over to my house for a barbecue, yeah, you were in my backyard, it's yeah. 95 degrees yeah. out, and I was like, hey, Malcolm, can I get you a nice cold, tall glass of lemonade? I made it to my grandmother's recipe, fresh squeezed, how about a lemonade? No. What, what, or you drink milk? It's 95 degrees out. Malcolm. Water. And you don't, you don't, you don't feel any tinge of regret or that you don't feel like you're missing something in life? I walked away from those options a long time ago. And you're at peace with that? I'm at peace with that. You said that it's about decisions. Like you like these rules because it it frees you up from having to make decisions. Mm. Is there also part of you that just likes rigidity, that likes structure? So I think we forget how freeing certain kinds of constraints can be. You know, anyone who's ever done any creative work sooner or later comes to the conclusion that constraints are incredibly useful. Telling someone they only have this much to spend or this much time, you know, it has to be this long. Throughout my entire writing career, whenever I got an assignment, the absolute first question I ask is, how long is it? How long does the thing have to be? From there, everything flows. Right. Part of this is, well, you know, I'm a runner, a relatively serious runner, and serious running requires an enormous amount of self-imposed structure, right? I had to figure out, you know, it's a Tuesday. It's five below outside. I have to do the following workout. It must be done today. When am I going to do it? Right. And I got 17 things that are due, and I've got, you know, blah, 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 and I got to go do the grocery shopping. And there's some pleasures that you can't gain unless you're willing to be super structured. Coming up, we look into the surprising origins of chunky tomato sauce and the tragic story of McDonald's french fries. And I ask, where does pleasure fit into the structured life of Malcolm Gladwell? Stick around. Time to cook up some advertisements. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best 
value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool, almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the choice hotels take care of all the other stuff too. But I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Recently, I went into my closet to try to get a collared shirt out, and it occurred to me that I don't think I have bought a new collared shirt in five years. I mean, (laughs) every shirt in there was either really old, or it had some kind of perma-stain situation, or it probably never fit right in the first place. I got to freshen up a little bit here. It's time for something new, right? And spring is coming. Now is the time if you've been looking to refresh your wardrobe, home, or skincare and beauty routines this season. Because, you know, Walmart has genuinely surprising style finds that don't break the bank. This spring, there's only one destination for the latest fashion, home, and beauty inspired by real life. Walmart. I freshened up my wardrobe. I got some nice dress shirts, a couple light hoodies. You know, you need light hoodies for the springtime. Very useful, very comfortable. Discover surprisingly stylish new season favorites at Walmart now or shop it all on the Walmart app. Go to walmart.com slash now trending. That's walmart.com slash now trending. Now trending your style at Walmart. It's been chilly here in the Northeast lately, and we have been on a big grilled cheese dipped into tomato sauce kick here in the Pashman household. And I'm making the grilled cheese with Hero sliced bread. The kids like the Hero classic white bread. I like the Hero seeded bread. It's fluffy. The crust is just right. And I like that the slices are sliced just a little bit thicker than a lot of other sliced breads. You griddle it in butter. You add some cheese. You dip it in the soup. Phenomenal. And all the Hero breads are low in net carbs, and they're high in fiber. All these Hero Breads are delicious and flavorful. They'll give you that soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a refreshing BLT, savory breakfast burrito, or mouthwatering cheeseburger. So whether you're making homemade grilled cheese, BLT, maybe a tuna melt sounds nice on some Hero seeded bread. I bet that would be really good. Maybe you're doing sliders and the Hawaiian rolls. Whatever it is, Hero has the bread for you. Don't give up being a breadhead. And Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use code SPORKFUL at checkout. That's code SPORKFUL at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Famous Amos chocolate chip cookies are so iconic that I just say Famous Amos and it's like I can taste it. Each cookie is filled with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. And the word satisfying is very key there because some cookies are crunchy and brittle, and I don't like that. But Famous Amos has a deep, tooth-sinkable, satisfying crunch that I know and love. And Famous Amos classic bite-sized chocolate chip cookies are bringing back the original recipe that everyone knows and loves. One perfect bite, everything classic in a cookie. Find Famous Amos cookies anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. In last week's show, I go out for a slice of pizza with Scott Wiener, who runs Scott's Pizza Tours in New York City. This guy is so into pizza that if he sees a paper plate on the sidewalk, he can tell which pizzeria it came from by the exact dimensions of the grease outline on the plate, where the slice used to be. He also has the Guinness World Record for the largest collection of pizza boxes. So naturally, I wondered how Scott's pizza obsession affects his dating life. 
I am very conscious of the fact that my job and my whole lifestyle and this whole world is is unique. So I don't like that to run a whole conversation. But I'm I also know that it's very much truly me. So it's okay if I'm getting to know somebody, they will need to know this at some point. <laughs> but maybe not the first five minutes of right, like right, right. hey, how you doing? Hey, I gotta tell you about this pizza I saw yesterday. Listen to this. <laughs> They were using bituminous coal. I can't believe it either. <laughs> this is a super fun conversation. And if you want to hear me agonize over what to order, it's gotten I head to his local pizzeria. That one's up now. Okay, back to my conversation with Malcolm Gladwell. As you heard, Malcolm grew up feeling like an outsider in his rural Ontario town. When he began writing, he turned that outsider's eye on his subjects, which sometimes include the food industry. One of his personal heroes is a man named Howard Moskowitz. Howard's a market researcher whose legacy began in the early 70s when Pepsi asked him to figure out how much aspartame they should put in Diet Pepsi. So he ran a bunch of taste tests to see how much sweetener most people wanted. But when the data came back, it was all over the place. There was no clear favorite. Howard didn't get it. And one day he was sitting in a diner and suddenly, like a bolt of lightning, the answer came to him. This is Malcolm giving a TED Talk years ago about Howard Moskowitz. When they analyzed the Diet Pepsi data, they were asking the wrong question. They were looking for the perfect Pepsi, and they should have been looking for the perfect Pepsis. What Howard discovered was that there was no magical level of sweetness. Different people like different things. Now, that might sound obvious, but at the time, this was a revolutionary concept in the food world. Howard confronted the notion of the platonic dish. <laughs> what do I mean by that? For the longest time in the food industry, there was a sense that there was one way, a perfect way, to make a dish. This old idea that there was one best way to make a food product also extended to tomato sauce. For years, restaurants and food producers primarily sold blended thin tomato sauces. So when Prego asked Howard to help them revamp their sauce, he saw his chance to confront the notion of the platonic dish. He made batches of every variation of tomato sauce you could possibly think up. Thin, zesty, garlicky, spicy, chunky, creamy. And when the data came back, once again, it was all over the place. But instead of trying to identify one favorite, Howard sorted the data into groups. And what he found is that there are three primary ways people like their sauce. Thin, spicy, and extra chunky. And that last one, extra chunky, that was significant because there was no extra chunky tomato sauce on the market at the time. Roughly a third of consumers craved chunky tomato sauce, but no company was making it. And what's especially fascinating to me is that consumers weren't explicitly asking for it. People didn't even realize this was a thing they wanted. But when presented with chunky tomato sauce, they went crazy for it. People don't know what they want, right? As Howard loves to say, the mind knows not what the tongue wants. It's a mystery. An, import, an a critically important step in understanding our own desires and tastes is to realize that we cannot always explain what we want deep down. Do you think that's generally true with all kinds of things beyond food? Oh, yeah. So this is actually, there's a lot of literature on this in, uh, in psychology. So I once in one of my books, I think it was Blink, had a whole chapter on the problem with market research. So you have a movie, you show it to a test audience and you record their reaction to it. And what you find is that bad movies or bad TV shows get really low scores, but so do extraordinarily good ones, 
groundbreaking ones, innovative ones. So all, you know, famously Seinfeld got terrible scores from, from test audiences. And the problem there is that in a test, when a test audience is watching something, they, in the moment, you can't distinguish between dislike and uh, unfamiliarity. So you're responding to something and there's a chance you hate it, but there's also a chance you've just it's just something so new that you don't know how you feel about it. So I was watching my daughter, who's one. She picked up a, a wedge of lemon, and she put it in her mouth, and she made this incredible face. She put it down again. I can't believe I'm telling baby stories. This is like how far I've sunk. <laughs> and then she picked it up again and brought it back to her mouth. So this is actually a version of what I'm talking about. She can't decide whether it's new and unfamiliar, and maybe that's maybe it's something I'll learn to love, she's saying to herself, or it's just something that's horrible. Right. So that is a version of the 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 mind knows not what the tongue wants. The other big takeaway from the story of chunky tomato sauce and Howard Moskowitz mm-hmm. is the idea that different people like different things. Yeah. He's really the guy who invents segmentation in food. Right. This is why there's now like 18 kinds of Reese's peanut butter cups. Yeah. He that's Howard. He gave us that world. The original idea of tomato sauce, of what tomato sauce should be, as you say in your piece, was the quote-unquote authentic style of a thin Italian red sauce before yeah. chunky style came along. So, And I was interested in this use of this, this idea of authenticity. It's something you've also talked about like in your Taco Bell episode of your mm-hmm. podcast. We all know that Taco Bell is not authentic Mexican food. Um, but you sort of made an interesting point in that episode about Taco Bell having been accused of cultural appropriation and the role that you think it plays in culture. Yeah, yeah. Taco Bell builds off the tradition of Mexican food and also introduces Mexican food or a version of it to a broad spectrum of American society that would might never have known about it. Many Americans discovered black music through Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley takes black music, makes it acceptable to a large portion of American audiences who then get educated about it to the point where they start listening to Otis Redding or Al Green or Marvin Gaye or what have you. And they wouldn't have gotten there, maybe not as quickly or maybe never at all, had there not been someone to interpret the tradition for them. And my argument was that Taco Bell was doing the same thing, that they were interpreting a tradition in a way that made it acceptable to the broad spectrum of American society, who could then turn around and experience the real thing. You're not going to hunt for the greatest food truck, Mexican food taco in LA, unless you have some familiarity with Mexican food beforehand. There is such a thing as appropriation, but there's also such a thing as translation and interpretation. And those are different things. And I think it's important for us to be able to distinguish between when someone's just going in and ripping off a tradition— and when someone is going in and transforming a tradition in a way that may ultimately end up benefiting the originator. I, I hear what you're saying. I think the part of that equation that 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 I, I also note is maybe you eventually get to the point where people are going to get the quote-unquote real thing because they started with the kind of mm. gateway interpretation. Yeah. Um but I think also the other thing that happens is that when you have that sort of gateway mm-hmm. that introduces people to the cuisine, they they form a certain expectation of what that cuisine is going to be. And it places pressure on the more authentic purveyors to compromise in order to attract that broader audience. 
And some of those compromises, once they're made, never get unmade because it becomes the prevailing way of doing things. And so, yes, something is gained Mm -hmm. in that interpretation, but also something is lost. Mm -hmm. You're going to lose some amount of vernacular in a cuisine. And But but you're assuming that vernacular is something that's static and that's wrong if it changes, as opposed to looking on things like music and food as things that are in constant evolution. It's clear to me with music. So Elvis comes along, takes R&B, which had been confined to the African-American community, popularizes it, and then people start discovering the very artists that Elvis is quote-unquote stealing from, right? Now, did those artists end up quote-unquote compromising a little bit, but now they're making money. Now they're reaching millions of people as opposed to thousands of people. So now maybe a better way of saying what they're doing is not compromising, but they're experimenting. They're understanding they're in a completely different market. Weren't there a lot of black musicians who, in the, around that time, a lot of them started doing covers of white hits? Yeah, and why not? My point is like, only good things, I think, ultimately come from cross-pollination of cultures. That's where real innovation starts to happen. So, like, the stuff is, like, circling the world so many times. It's dizzying. Who's authentic? I don't know. Like, it's just a jumble. And that's why it's so powerful and surprising and delightful. It's like, be respectful. But if you're doing it with respect, maybe it's because I am myself a jumble of cultural traditions that I'm, I have nothing but enthusiasm for this kind of like, I'm like everybody climb in. One more food story that Malcolm's talked about in recent years is what happened to McDonald's French fries. This issue really hits home for him. My father did not believe in McDonald's, never would permit us to go there. And there was no McDonald's in my town. You had to go quite some distance to get to a McDonald's. So it's not until, I don't think I have McDonald's until I'm 14. And I had heard about the fries. I don't think I'd even had, this is going to sound unbelievable, but I don't believe I'd had French fries ever until I had McDonald's French fries at the age of 14. So you're saying your father had a lot of rigid food rules. He would call them, he had a set of principles by which he lived his life. Okay. He, be- he believed... How many different liquids did he consume? Tea. Okay. <laughs> uh, never had coffee, never had wine, never had beer, never had any hard liquor. Tea, water, milk. Wow. Three. He's a three. He's a three liquid. Wow. Guy. So see, you're really, you're, you're, you're like oh, psychedelic I'm, compared I'm, to him, I'm, Malcolm. I'm, oh, yeah. No, no. I'm, <laughs> I'm like the Frank Zappa of liquids in my family. Um... So I go, I, th- I think it was after track practice. Uh, we go to a McDonald's and- Like with a group of friends. With a group of other runners. And I think it's safe to say my, my mind was blown. I had very little fried food growing up until <laughs> uh, that day when I, when I experienced this kind of life-altering moment. The young people today don't understand that McDonald's once had the the greatest fries. I mean, they were, they were the gold standard of fries. I mean, and then they- ditched their fry recipe for no good reason. This is like a, a culinary U-turn of historic proportions. <laughs> I mean, it's like... It it's right be, up there with new Coke. It, 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 worse. <laughs> worse. <laughs> and now we've been living with these sort of sodden also-rans ever since. 
I'll explain. Back in the late 70s, when Malcolm would have tried those fries for the first time, he was eating the original McDonald's fries, made with a recipe created by the McDonald brothers. When businessman Ray Kroc got a taste of those fries, he said they were the number one thing that convinced him to buy McDonald's in the 60s and transform it into the multi-billion dollar company it is today. McDonald's was built on those fries, which were fried in beef tallow, that's rendered beef fat. It gives you a super crispy exterior and a soft, creamy interior. But in the early 90s, that all changed, thanks to a guy named Phil Sokoloff. He was a wealthy Nebraska businessman who became a crusader against saturated fats after suffering a heart attack at age 43. Phil took out ads in newspapers decrying fast food and debated a McDonald's exec on Good Morning America. Eventually, Phil won. McDonald's caved. They changed the recipe and announced they would fry their French fries in a mixture of vegetable oils. The fries haven't been the same since. The kicker is, not only did the vegetable oil result in what Malcolm thinks is an inferior fry, but research that came out years later showed vegetable oil has its own health risks. It probably isn't any better for you than beef tallow. Malcolm made a whole episode about this on his podcast, Revisionist History. Here he is delivering his final verdict. Now, do I hate Phil Sokoloff? I've thought a lot about this in the intervening years, and I've come to realize that I don't hate him. He could have bought a yacht and a big house in a gated community in Florida and played golf. Instead, he took on McDonald's in an attempt to make the world a healthier, better place. My hat is off to him. That seems like a very generous reading. I mean, you, you, you talk to Phil's daughter, and she sort of says that he realized after the fact that, that the fries were now not nearly as good. Mm-hmm. We now know that he didn't make them any healthier. Yeah, he didn't know that. He didn't know that. Fair enough. Clearly, he had good intentions. All I'm saying is that if it hadn't been for him on this sort of quixotic quest, then the fries wouldn't have been changed, as your story puts forth. And so so how can you let him off the hook? Because he's not a big corporation. McDonald's is the one who is is charged with the public responsibility of making great French fries. They're the ones who abandon their heritage— because some guy takes out an ad in the Wall Street Journal? I mean, where's their spine? Okay, so you can say that in the moment, maybe they legitimately thought that they were peddling an unsafe product. Once we learned that vegetable oil is not, in fact, a superior cooking oil to beef tallow. And, not, and not healthier. And not healthier. They should have switched back. I, I, I agree with you on that. That they should come out and say, we blew it, we're sorry, an entire generation of Americans were denied access to a quality French fry. We will have that on our conscience for as long as we are a publicly held corporation. <laughs> I, want, I want the full-on corporate apology. Do you seek out beef tallow fries today? Well, it's funny. After that episode of Originalist History ran, I would go into restaurants and the waiter or sometimes the chef would come out and say, just so you know, we cook our fries in beef tallow. Okay. <laughs> and then the... One of the major producers of beef tallow in the country sent me a giant tub of beef tallow <laughs> with our thanks. Right. <laughs> did you do anything with it? Cook with it for years. <laughs> of course I did. It's fantastic stuff. That moment that you had as a mm. 13 or 14-year-old mm. eating those McDonald's French fries, mm. experiencing a new taste experience. Yeah. Do you still seek out that experience today? In food? Nothing's ever going to be as dramatic as that first encounter with a perfectly made French fry. I don't think I'll ever be able to get back to that level. And what about liquids? 
you're not worried that there's some liquid out there that could give you that same experience if only you were to put it to your lips? No. <laughs> you said in that in that episode, the world's a bleak place when there's no room for pleasure. Are you suggesting I contradict myself? <laughs> <laughs> and what's wrong with that? <laughs> I mean, look, eat however you want, drink however you want. Yeah. I'm not telling anyone it's wrong. But as someone who derives a huge amount of my daily pleasure from what I eat and drink, especially eat, I want other people to get as much happiness from this thing that I get from it. Yeah. I just feel like you don't want a lemonade? No, because remember, I could also bring up a whole series of pleasures that I have, which I, I don't think you share, and that pains me that you don't share them. Like what? The pleasure of uh, a 12-mile run on a crisp fall day. Well, that's, you got me there. You have me pegged. All right. Well, look, I'm going to go have a glass of lemonade. You go for a run. (laughs) That is Malcolm Gladwell. He hosts the podcast Revisionist History, which has a new season debuting September 15th. You can also go back and listen to his full episode about McDonald's fries. It's called McDonald's Broke My Heart. Malcolm is the author of many books. The latest is The Bomber Mafia, an exploration of how technology and best intentions collide in the heat of war. Next week on the show, I travel to the headquarters of Consumer Reports to see the extreme lengths they go to to test kitchen equipment. While you wait for that one, check out last week's show with Scott Wiener of Scott's Pizza Tours, in which he says the line, I love pizza, but I really don't think I'm insane. You be the judge. It's up now. If you're new to our show, please subscribe or favorite or follow whatever the thing is in your app. Maybe it's press the heart or the plus or the subscribe button. Please do that thing right now while you're listening. Then you won't miss future episodes. Thanks. This show is produced by me along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producers Andres O'Hara and Johanna Mayer. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. Our engineer is Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Eric Eddings and Colin Anderson. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Dylan James from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. And I'm telling you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.